Air Force officer. In the 50s, he was on the bomber cruise, and he was flying a great deal. He was off to Air War College, even overseas sometimes for many months at a time. In the 60s, he began to move up the ranks, and with the move came increasing responsibility and, and uh, heavy workload. And in the mid-60s, a 13-month away-from-home tour of duty in Vietnam. I loved my dad, and I love my dad. And I missed him a lot when he was gone, a whole lot. In fact, I remember crying every time. Always the flight bag at the front door. Always the kiss and the hug goodbye. And then a few weeks or, or months later, always the excitement and the anticipation of his return home. Always asking mom, now when is dad going to walk through the front door? At least two things always happened between my dad and me before he would leave. I was the oldest son at home, though I have an older brother. He's so much older, he was gone. He would sit me down before he'd go on these long trips, and he would say, number one, Steve, I'm leaving you with a tremendous amount of responsibility. And I want you to take care of your mom, and I want you to take care of your brothers, I want you to keep the yard mowed, and I want you to keep your room cleaned, and I want you to encourage your mom when she's a little low, when she's a little down. And then secondly, when he'd get all through telling me all the things he expected me to do, when he'd get done, the second thing he'd always say, very gently and very lovingly, he said, I'll be back in a couple of months, and we'll see how you did. I know you can do a great job. And I can remember times when he was gone that I did a wonderful job. I really did take care of things quite well. And I can remember times that I failed my dad, and I failed myself, and I failed my mom, and I failed my brothers. And I will always remember my dad loving me, no matter how well or how poorly I did. But he also took the responsibility he gave me very, very seriously, always. And we had a lot of very long talks when he returned. Jesus Christ is coming back someday, soon, in my opinion, theologically and biblically. And he is going to greet and love all of us who have trusted in him as Savior. But he is also coming back to see how seriously we have handled the responsibilities that He's laid in our laps. He has given to us a stewardship, oikonomia in the Greek text. He's given us the task of managing much, all that belongs to Him. He has given us the job of overseeing and caring for that which is His. He has given to me, and He's given to you, the responsibility to concern ourselves with that which concerns Him. 
And He's coming back to see how we've done. How well we've managed. How good of stewards we've been over the things that are His. He's coming back to talk to us. To sit us down. And He's told us so in His Word. But in specifically Luke 19. I'd like you to turn in your Bibles if you would there. Luke 19 beginning in verse 11. Jesus is teaching on the stewardship or the management of Christian responsibility. And in a story, a parable, He tells His disciples that He will be gone for a while. He tells them that He will be back soon. He tells them what responsibilities they have while He is gone. And He tells them that this is very serious business as far as He is concerned and that they will give an accounting to Him for their performance. All of this is true. And all of this is going to happen. Many Christians today believe that because of God's grace, God's unconditional love and acceptance of them, that how they live is of little significance. How they perform is of little importance. But nothing could be further from the truth. My dad loved me. And he loved me unconditionally. And I would always, always, no matter how I lived, be his precious son that he would die for. But how I lived and how I performed was absolutely critical to him. And he always, always wanted to talk to me about my performance when he returned. Just like Jesus will with each of us. One day soon. Luke chapter 19 beginning in verse 11. The parable of Jesus. Listen to this story. This is the Lord talking. While they were listening to this, that is, His previous lessons as He was talking to Zacchaeus, while they were listening to this, He went on to tell them a parable, a story. Because He was near Jerusalem and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once, any moment. He said... A man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. So he called ten of his servants and he gave them ten minas. I'll explain that in a second. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. Now, he's already talking about two distinct groups here, servants and subjects. He was made king, however, and returned home. Then he sent for the servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. The first one came and said, Sir, your mina has earned ten more. Well done, my servant. His master replied, Because you have been trustworthy in a very small matter, take charge of ten cities. The second came and said, Sir, your mina has earned five more. 
His master answered, You take charge of five cities. Then another servant came and said, Sir, here is your mina. I have kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you are a hard man. You take out what you did not put in and reap what you did not sow. His master replied, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You knew, did you, that I am a hard man, taking out what I did not put in and reaping what I did not sow? Why then didn't you put my money on deposit so that when I came back, I would have collected it with interest? Then he said to those standing by, Take his mina away from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. Sir, they said, he already has ten. He replied, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But as for the one who has nothing, even what he has will be taken, will be taken away. But those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. Jesus Christ taught this story. These are his words. This is a very simple parable with a very hard lesson. Jesus is the master. Jesus is the nobleman, the one who is to be appointed king. Those who have trusted in Jesus are the servants or the slaves Doulos in the Greek, a distinct group that he addresses at the beginning of the story. Those who hate Jesus, who do not want him as their king, are the subjects or the citizens in verse 14. Greek term politai, a different group of people, referring to the religious leaders, the Pharisees of the day. And to each of his servants, not the subjects or the citizens or the religious leaders, to each of his servants, the king gives one mina. Now a mina is three months' wages. This is a lot of money. This is a lot of responsibility. So he, to each one, he gives one mina, about three months' wages. Now, this gift of one mina was four things. First, it was a substantial gift. How would you like someone to give you three months' salary? The servants were being given a great deal here. Second, it remained the king's at all times. It was his mina. He could give it, he could take it back as he did with the third servant. The servants could not at all claim this mina as their own. It was not theirs. It was the king's. Third, it was to be put to work. It became a responsibility. In other words, the servants were to be productive with this gift. They were to do something with it. And fourth, it was something given to each servant. In other words, every follower of the king received a responsibility. Nobody was left out. But that's not all the parable teaches. There comes a day Jesus is presenting to us, a day of accounting, a day when the king returns to question his servants. 
a day to find out what they have done with the one mina. A day to judge their Back next week, that will be enough time too. So please consider that. There comes that day, Jesus is saying in this story. And what you see is, some will take one and turn it into ten. Some will take one and turn it into five. And some will take one and do absolutely nothing with it. Nothing. And to each, the king will have a word. Well done, my good servant. Here is much, much more for you. Well done, my good servant. Here is much, much more for you. Poorly done, my servant. You who have sat idle and not worked. Give back to me what I have given to you. I will pass it on to someone who is producing. Now I can see Jesus' followers reacting to this story. Just as you are probably reacting to this. Emotionally. And saying to the Lord, Now, wait a minute, Lord. Wait a minute. This sounds a little tough here. I thought you came to present grace and truth and you're soft and you're gentle. This seems a little tough to me. You're putting the pressure on us. You're twisting our arms. You're making us afraid. You're motivating us through fear. Where's the love and where's the softness, Lord? We don't comprehend this story. We don't like this. But you see, that doesn't work, that kind of response. There is no meanness here. I never thought my dad was cruel or mean-spirited or that his expectations were unreasonable. I never thought that about my dad. He wasn't trying, my dad wasn't trying to make me afraid as he walked out the door for two months. He loved me, and that love was the most important feeling he wanted me to have as he turned to get on an airplane. That I understood that he loved me. He would love me if I did poorly, and he wanted me to know that too. That he would love me no matter what. And I was absolutely certain of that, about my relationship with my dad. But he expected me to manage well while he was away, and there were consequences when he got back if I blew off what he told me to do. And I respected that. And I understood that. And I thanked God for a dad like that. And I was so glad I had a father who treated me that way, especially as I got older. And I will tell you, I am so glad that I worship a God who's just like that. 
There's no meanness here. I love you. I give you responsibility. I'm coming back to see how you did. And we're going to have a long talk about it when I get back. Now let me give you three principles of stewardship if you're writing notes in your bulletin, in the outline. Let me give you three principles that surface from this parable. First, what we have we have because God has given it to us. That is seen over and over and over again in Scripture, and it's even pictured in this parable. What we have, we have because God has given it to us. Just as the king gave the mina to his servants, so God gives us all good things. He has given to us each day to live. He could pull the plug anytime He desires. He, gives, he has given to us our jobs and our incomes. He has given to us our health and our ability to work. And if for a moment, if for one moment, we think that what we have in our hands has been gained solely through our greatness and our smartness and our wisdom, we will find God to be quite the teacher willing to humble us by moving things in and out of our hands. All that we have, we have because God is gracious to us. And He has set the context and the environment and the economy and our health and everything else such that we can work and earn a living. And even that itself is a gift from Him. The first principle of stewardship in the Bible is that God is a gracious giver. He has given these minas to us. Second, what we have, God commands us to manage well. We are to do something good with these gifts that He's given to us. We are to produce. We are to be productive. We are to be on the move, working hard, responsible for the Lord. Laziness, sluggard living, a someone else will do it attitude is never to be a part of the Christian lifestyle. Never. Ever. It's never acceptable. How many of you read the Far Side cartoon? I love it. I came across one the other day. The picture, there's this recliner chair. A chair out in the front yard pushing the lawnmower. Mowing the lawn running, huffing and puffing and sweating and just going full blast. And the couple's inside the house looking out the window and they say something like, wow, look, our lazy boy got up and went. <laughs> I guess you would have had to have seen it. <laughs> That's to be us. Getting up, producing. Jesus said, here's the mina. Here's the gift. Here's the responsibility. Go to work. Get up. Don't sit around. Third principle 
What we have, when we get done, God will want to see it. What we have, when we get done, God will want to see it. Let me tell you, to put it in secular terms, there is going to be a job review for Christians. Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10 put it this way to his fellow Christians. For we must all, every single last one of us, appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. If you've trusted in Jesus Christ, you are ushered into the kingdom of heaven for all eternity. But there's still a judgment day for you and for me where God is going to look at all of the things we've done, whether good or bad, and we will receive a reward or loss of rewards. In other words, if I have trusted in Jesus Christ, heaven is a certainty. But so is a day that Christ will judge what I have done with the mina. How I've lived. I don't know any other better way to illustrate it than a stewardship. Or excuse me, a stewardess on an airliner. That stewardess doesn't own one thing on that airplane. She owns nothing. None of it is hers. Someone else owns it. At the same time, she is expected to manage someone else's property well. To serve the food. To take care of the people on the plane. To be a good steward or stewardess of something that someone else owns. And then there comes a time... Once a year, every six months, every two years, I don't know how often, there's a job review. Someone's going to sit that man or that woman down and talk to them about how well they've done. I bet the airlines didn't know they were so godly. This is exactly the way it will work and is to work in the Christian life. Now finally, let me give you three very clear areas in Scripture that we are to practice good stewardship. If you care at all about facing Jesus Christ one day and pleasing Him, here's three areas that are very important. First, we are to be wise managers of our time. Our days on earth, the tick of the clock, our time is a gift from God and we are commanded by, by God to manage our time well. Paul writes in Ephesians 5, Be very careful how you live, not as those who are unwise, but wise, making the most of your time, because the days are evil. So then, do not be foolish. Wasting time. Misusing time is absolutely unacceptable to the Lord. It is a mina that He has given to you and to me. Resting when we should be working, working when we should be resting, playing when we should be serving other people, serving other people when we should be playing. Jesus was working with the multitudes. There are a lot of people in that crowd that needed healing and needed teaching. 
And he looks around at his men and he's exhausted and they're exhausted and he looks at them and he says, let's go to the other side of the lake and rest a while. Let's get out of here. And I can see some legalists coming up going, oh Lord, no, wait a minute. Wait, wait, wait. There's someone over here that hasn't gotten everything they need. They haven't been taught enough. They haven't been healed. They're still walking around crippled. And he looks at them and he says, I'm going to tell you, get in that boat. We're going to go to the other side and we're going to rest a while. Jesus knew when to go and He knew when to stop. He knew how to manage His time. He knew the wisdom of managing the tick of the clock. Second, we are to be wise managers of our talents. Peter wrote in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10, Each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others. Karatos in the Greek. A spiritual, gracious gift, spiritual ability given by God to you and to me who have trusted in His Son. We have been given by God a spiritual ability or talent, and the Word commands us to use this to serve other people. Maybe your spiritual God-given gift is teaching. Then teach. Maybe your spiritual God-given ability is leadership. Then you should give some leadership in God's kingdom. Maybe your giftedness is hospitality. Then open up your home and allow people to use it. Maybe your giftedness is administration then organize instead of complain. Help the Christian world become organized and orderly. I will tell you, Joe Brennan should never, ever have to worry about filling the promised land with teachers. That is absolutely unacceptable. And I'm not saying he sits and frets and worries about it, but he should never have to worry about filling those classrooms to teach your children with teachers. That doesn't make any sense at all. We should be flocking to Joe, overwhelming him with our commitment to use our time and our talents to serve and to teach and to love and encourage those children back there. Sign up. And I mean it. Sign up. Use your giftedness this summer. We're talking three months. Serve. And finally, we're to be wise managers of our money, our treasure, which, of course, is God's anyway. Solomon wrote in Proverbs 3, verse 9, Honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your crops. With the first of all that you produce, all your crops, from the top of all your income, he's saying, honor the Lord. The cream. You bring the baskets of fruit in from the orchard, Before you take a bite, offer an apple to the Lord first. You bring home a paycheck, small or large. 
before you take a bite out of that paycheck, the Word of God is saying, offer the first bite to the Lord. It's very clear and very simple. Haggai chapter 2, verse 8, God says, the silver is mine. God is saying the silver is mine and the gold is mine. It's all mine. Jesus is saying in Luke 19, you manage it well and you honor the Lord with it. If you're looking for a place to honor the Lord with your treasure, let me tell you, we could use it here at the church. I wonder how many times over the years I've heard people say, well, I'm not really given to FBC. I love it and I'm committed to it, but you all don't need it. I hear it all the time. Well, let me tell you, we need another pastor or two or three. We need another pastor or two or three very badly. We have four full-time pastors for a church with an attendance of around 2,000 people. And we need help so as to better minister to and with you. And also let me tell you that as we work to move onto our land and into a building, the cost of that facility on that land hovers around $3 million. There's no way to do it for much less than that. And this is for an inexpensively designed and constructed building. This is for a worship sanctuary seating 900 people, 300 less than is in here. This is for a facility that if we grow much at all, we will go back to three services, which we are happy to do to save square footage and dollars. And we've discussed all this. But no matter how you cut it, it's going to cost around $3 million to put this up. And so I ask you, can you give? If you've never given, can you start? And if you have given, can you look to see if you can give more? And then, can we all give again to the facility so that we can move on to that land? My dad was gone on a trip one time, and we had a flat tire on the big Buick that we own. And my mom was all upset, and she didn't know what to do, and there it sat out there in the driveway, flat tire, you couldn't move it, didn't want to pay a towing truck to come pick it up. And so she was telling my dad all this, and he got me on the phone. He said, let me, let me talk to Steve. So he got me on the phone. He said, here's what I want you to do. I don't want you to go to school tomorrow. I want you to change the tire. I know you've never changed a tire. I'm going to tell you exactly how to do it. I want you to change it in the morning, and then your mom's going to take you to school, and then she can take the car by and get it checked to make sure you did it okay. And I remember how scary it was changing a, a tire for the first time. But I did it. I did it exactly the way he told me to do it. My mom was happy. I was happy. But I remember most of all 
when my dad got home. And he grabbed me and he said, good job, son. Thanks for taking care of things while I was away. I remember how good that felt to hear those words. Good job, son. Thanks for taking care of things while I was away. I want to hear those same words from the Lord one day. Well done, good and faithful servant. You've managed my property well. Let's pray. Would you bow your heads? Our Father in heaven, you know so well the questions I am asked as a pastor all of the time. And this certainly ranks near the top. What is a good steward? What is good stewardship? What does it look like? How important is it to manage time, spiritual gifts, money, finances? Does the Lord really care? Doesn't He own any, everything anyway? Thank you, Lord, for teaching this story. Thank you for presenting it to us. We love you, and we ask that you will help us understand the importance of the minas in our lives. The importance of being good stewards. The importance of knowing that one day you will return and sit us down and have a long and loving talk with each one of us. So help us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Bob Lewis, thank you very much. <clears throat> when I was 14 years old, in ninth grade, I sneaked a can of pop, Coca-Cola, out of my civics teacher's lunch sack And I shook it as hard as I could for as long as I could and secretively put it back in his sack. I envisioned and dreamed of the explosion as he opened the can in the teacher's lounge and just thought it was the funniest thing I'd ever thought of in my life. It did explode to some degree or another. Some pigtailed girl later told him why. And that night during dinner, he called my house. And my dad answered the phone. We were all sitting around the dinner table. My oldest brother was in for a visit, and my dad answered the phone, and I could hear what it was about. And I watched him walk slowly back to the table. And he informed everybody as he sat down, my mom and my brothers, all three of them, about what had happened and, and what I had done. 
Now, I won't go into the details of, of what was discussed, but I want to tell you how my brothers responded because I can remember that distinctly. My oldest brother, who was in his early 20s at the time, just looked at me and said, I cannot believe you could do something so stupid as that. My other brother, who's two years younger than me, looked at my dad as if pleading and saying, Steve should get a whooping. I still get whoopings. Steve should get a whooping. <laughs> and my youngest brother, who was about three or four or five, somewhere in there, I don't remember exactly, I appreciated his comment the most. He said, I'd just kick him out of the family. <laughs> he does this kind of thing all the time. He's the embarrassment. He should just be kicked out of the family. Thank the Lord that children aren't responsible to raise children. Let me jump to some other true stories. I want you to imagine a pastor in a very large city, highly respected by literally hundreds if not thousands of people, a family man, an author, kissing his wife goodbye in the morning, evidently on his way to work, and then roaming the alleyways, peeping through windows at women, eventually ending in uh, aggravated sexual assault and a prison term of eight years in Huntsville, Texas. I want you to imagine a young wife and mother in a small group, a fellowship group that I led for several years, who over time it became evident that she had a tremendous problem with lying and exaggeration and got to the point where virtually no one trusted her, believed much of anything that she said. I want you to imagine a Christian leader, quite well known, an author, even a friend of mine for some time, very critical of divorced people, people whose marriages would, would end in divorce, and then these people would get remarried, and very, very critical and condemning of these kinds of people that have lived these sorts of lives and been through these sorts of circumstances, but at the same time, evidently, not loving his wife as he should and the lack of affection. And eventually she reached a point where she got completely fed up with him, divorced him, and literally wiped him out for years and years and years. I want you to imagine a Christian in sin, living poorly before the Lord, accepting his lifestyle, even justifying his lifestyle, refusing to be corrected, refusing to listen to the Word of God. Just imagine these. Imagine a little boy shaking up a can of pop. All of these situations are true. Completely true. Didn't make up any one of them. All of these situations are different, but I will tell you that all of them had, unfortunately, one common denominator. And that common denominator was the condemning judgmentalism meted out 
by the Christian community. The condemning, harsh, angry, gossipy judgmentalism meted out by fellow brothers and sisters in the Lord. Every single one of them. Because I was in the middle of them. And I saw it. And I heard it. The gossip, the disguised contempt for people like this who would live like this or do these sorts of things or have to live through these kinds of experiences. The rejection of these people. The hard and the calloused spirit. The lack of compassion. All of these things I saw. You have a Christian man in your Bible study who has decided for one reason or another, very possibly, as I hear quite often, to save money. You have a Christian man in your Bible study who's decided to move in with his girlfriend. And he justifies it. What kind of response does he receive in most Christian groups today? How is he treated? I'm not talking about how his sin is treated. How is he treated? You have a couple in your Sunday school class who are planning to end their marriage of ten years and they justify it. They give you all the reasons why it's okay and why it's the right thing to do for the kids and for them and for everybody concerned. What kind of response do they receive in most Sunday school classes in churches in America today? You deal with a man who is arrogant. He's a reviler, as the Scripture puts it. He's abusive verbally. He slanders people and he's creating division in the church or in a small group. How do people respond to someone like that? How's he treated? Well, when you open up the Bible, you see that in all these cases, we are simply to kick these sorts of people out of our midst. Just be done with them. Have nothing to do with them again. Don't associate with them. Don't eat meals with them. Don't include them in your fellowship. Just cut them off. Isn't that what the Bible says? You believe that? That's what you see. I know that's what you see out there. Is that what you believe as accurate from the Word of God? Well, I hope not. I really hope not. I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9. I am continuing in this series. I have no idea how long it will last. Trying to answer some of these questions that I get literally all of the time. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9. Paul is talking to the crazy Corinthians, and they are definitely a crazy group of people. And if there ever was a church that needed help, I'll tell you, it was this one. Sin and confusion were absolutely everywhere, outside the church in the city, and definitely on the inside of the church. Corinth, the city, was full of drunkards and those who abused alcohol, 
And I'll tell you, the same case went on in the church. There was a problem inside the church in regard to drinking. Corinth, the city, was full of sexually immoral people and the acceptance of all kinds of perversion. And I'll tell you, the same exact thing was going on at the church in Corinth. Corinth, the city, was full of unhappy troublemakers who created all kinds of division in the city, and the same exact thing was happening in the local church setting. And Paul says, in regard to these kinds of people, when they enter the church and they mess up, and they do their thing, he says, well, look at verse 9 and following, 1 Corinthians 5, verse 9. I have written you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Do not associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you'd have to leave this world if you had nothing to do with them. But now I am writing you that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or a slanderer, a drunkard or a swindler. With such a man, do not even eat a meal. Okay, you got this? Did you read it? One of the easier passages in the New Testament. You got it? You understand what you're supposed to do? Look around the church and do these three things. First, get to know those who call themselves Christians, brothers. You go up to them, are you a believer in Jesus Christ? Absolutely, I trusted in Jesus Christ two years ago. I'm a brother. I believe in the Son of God. I believe that He died for my sin. So find out who those people are. Second, look and see. Now let's go down the list. Let's be fair here. Let's not pick and choose. Look and see if they are sexually immoral. Determine. Become a KGB agent and find out if they are sexually immoral. Or maybe God will bless you and you'll find out by accident. Find out if they are adulterers or fornicators having premarital sex. Find that out. Look and see if anyone is greedy. There's a good one. Find out if they're not giving their money freely and abundantly, if they're, if they're not being generous with their paycheck and a good portion of their paycheck to the work of God. Determine that. Look and see if they are into idolatry. Now, they probably don't have a little you know, trinket hanging around somewhere like they did a thousand years ago, but see, idolatry is loving and worshiping anything more than God. So just follow them around and determine, does, does this person love anything or anybody more than they love God? Look and see if they slander or revile, if they talk bad about people behind their backs, if in some small group they stir up some dissension and bad thinking about other people. 
Look and see if they are drunkards or swindlers. If they've ever abused or abused today alcohol or people. Just find that out. You need to determine that. And then third, once you've done all of that, if you find anyone who is like these kinds of people in the church or in your small group, then be completely obedient to the Word of God. Cut them off. Don't associate with them. Again, have nothing to do with them. Kick them out. In fact, do not even eat a meal with them. Don't meet them anywhere for a cup of coffee and a muffin or breakfast or lunch or dinner. Don't have them into your home. Don't do it. And surely, if you do all of that, you will be a complete and total pleasure to your Lord. Isn't that what it says? I don't think so. So that's what we do, and that's what we see, and that's what we experience. Do not associate. What in the world does that word mean? I'm not going to give you a Greek study, but I'm going to give you a picture of it. Do not even eat with them. Let me give you a picture of that. Have you ever associated with someone? Have you ever had a meal with someone such that the tone of your time together was that you were agreeable to their lifestyle? You sat with them, you ate with them, and your fellowship and your words were not at all corrective of their lifestyle, but approving of their lifestyle. You're in a small group, and the leader in the group, or a member of the group, reviles or slanders or judgmentally condemns or participates in condemning the pastors or the elders of the church or the pastors or the elders of another church or some member in the group who just didn't happen to show up that night. And you associate with that sin. You eat a meal with that sin. You nod and you approve. Yes, yes, I am with you. That's a right judgment. You sit with a woman who's married to an absolute jerk. Everybody would agree that he's a jerk. You know him. He treats her horribly. He verbally abuses her. He emotionally abuses her. He's awful. He's a terrible man. And she justifies a divorce from this man. That's her conclusion. And she justifies her love for another man that she's met at work. And you associate with her in in an approving way. You fellowship over a meal with her, smiling and nodding and going, yes, yes, this makes sense. Cut him off. No one should have to live like that. No correction from you. No boldness. No willingness to risk the friendship by judging the sin 
loving him or loving her, but judging the sin. No boldness, no willingness to do any of that. Just an acceptance, a fellowship. Let's have a meal. Let's talk. Let's agree together. I want you to feel real good. And the Lord says, come on. Come on. Get with the program. I need your help here. I want your help. This man, this woman needs a word from the Scriptures. And I need you to be bold, and I need you to be right, and I need you to love them, but I need you to hate what they're doing. Because I hate it. But you're sitting there just laughing and smiling over a salad and a glass of tea. And it's no big deal to you. And they're picking up that it's no big deal. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning in verse 9. Look at all that Paul has commanded through verse 13. Verse 9, do not associate with immoral people. Verse 11, do not associate with any so-called brother if he be an immoral person. Verse 12, do you not? Are you not to judge those who are within the church? Yes, you are. Verse 13, remove the wicked man from among yourselves. What does all this mean? Well, I'll tell you what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that you cut them off. It doesn't mean that you kick them out of the church. It doesn't mean that you toss them overboard and have nothing to do with them and treat them as if they are worthless and an embarrassment to you. And I'll prove it to you. Turn over to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 14. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 14. I could give you a Greek lesson here and deal with the word associate, but let me just show you in a picture what it means because Paul clarifies it. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 14. The Apostle Paul is writing again. He uses the exact same word, associate. He is, he is well aware of the reality of Christians who justify sin as a lifestyle, of Christians who care little or nothing about obedience to God. And so he writes a word in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 14. Look at what he writes. If anyone... I don't care who it is, does not obey our instruction in this letter. I want you to take special note of him, and I want you not to associate with him in order that he may feel ashamed. Now I want you to stop right there. Don't look ahead. Right there is where legalists love to stop and practice that verse as they see it, as they understand it. They love to stop those legalists, those people who connect and disconnect with people based solely on their performance. 
As long as you perform, I'll connect with you. If you don't perform, I disconnect. And I'm cutting you off. I'm not associating with you. That's what the Bible told me to do. They love to say, adios, out of here. Don't send them a copy of the schedule. But the message doesn't stop there. Look at verse 15 in your Bibles. Yet, do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him, admonish him as a brother. Now I want to know how you can kick someone out of the church, out of a small group, never have a meal with them, never associate with them any longer as some people interpret this and fulfill verse 15. Spend time warning him, admonishing him, correcting him, and treating him as a brother. Does it say kick them out? No way. You kick enemies out of your camp. You don't kick brothers out. You don't kick sons of God out. You don't kick children out. My dad did not say, yes, I like the youngest son's counsel the best. This makes sense. Steve, pack up. See ya. But it does say that the relationship has to change. It's got to look different now. It is to look and feel different. It is to include warnings and admonishments. It is to include hard, honest talks. But most of all, it is to include, I hope you underlined it, it is to include the love of a brother. You tell me how you kick someone out and do verse 15. You write me this week. Galatians 6, verse 1. Turn there. Galatians chapter 6, verse 1 gives us further instruction as to what to do with someone whose lifestyle is against the Word of God. Paul has spent five chapters presenting the grace of God. And no man needs grace, I will tell you, like the man who is caught in sin. No man needs correction like the man who's caught in sin, but no man needs grace like the man caught in sin. And Paul writes in Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, to those of us who have determined or detected that we have quite a sinner quite a rebel in our Bible study or our fellowship group or our adult classroom. He writes, Brothers, if someone is caught in, in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently. But watch yourself, or you also may be tempted. This verse answers a lot of questions, but let me pick on three. It answers three very significant questions. First, who are we to help? It answers that question. Who are we to help? The answer, 
the man who is caught in any trespass, any sin. Go back to 1 Corinthians 5. There's a list for you. We are to help the man who is caught in any sin. He may be an idolater. Well, he's been caught. He may be a reviler. He may be slandering people and talking about people behind their backs. Well, he's been caught. He may be dependent upon alcohol or money and slandering people in the process or swindling people in the process. Well, he's been caught. Whatever, he has been detected in his sin. Do you see what that's saying? He hasn't come forward and confessed his sin or asked for any help. He's been hiding it. He's been living this way and someone caught him red-handed. Someone came across this lifestyle. He hasn't tried to deal with it, but very possibly he's been justifying it, accepting it. It's become more of a pattern for him. That's who we're to help. Not just the person who comes humbly into the office or humbly into your home and go and says, I, I've got to tell you. Let, let me tell you how I've been living. And I feel terrible and I'm at a point of confession and repentance. I feel sick about it and now will you help me? Yeah, that person too. But the person who's caught. The person who's living that way every day. Second, what help are we to give? What are we supposed to do? Kick them out. No, it doesn't say that. The answer says, we are to restore such a man. In the Greek, the word katartizo, when it was used, when that word was used in secular, non-biblical writings of the day, it was a medical term used to describe the setting of broken bones. And when that word was used and is used in the New Testament, in the Greek New Testament, it is a word used to describe the mending of torn nets the sewing up, the patching up of torn fishing nets. Paul is saying, friends, you have someone whose life is all busted up by sin. I understand the flesh. I understand you want to scream and jump up and down and shake your head and act above it all and talk to people about it and get prayer groups to pray for it and use that as a way to gossip. I understand all that. I understand your desire to condemn and judge and criticize. But I want you to get involved. And I want you to care enough to set their broken spiritual bones. I want you to love them enough to mend their life and to sew up this life that's been busted and torn by their rebellion. That's what I'm telling you to do. Now who is to do this painful job of resetting broken spiritual bones? Who's supposed to do this? This is never easy to do. And it is painful from start to finish. Who gets to do it? Well, look at your text. Brethren, even if a man is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, 
restore such a one. I am so glad this is in there. You who are spiritual. Paul has described the spiritual man in chapter 5 of Galatians. The spiritual man or woman is the one who walks by the Spirit of God, who loves the Spirit of God, who is obedient to the Spirit of God, who obeys the Word of God. He or she is the one who exhibits the fruit of the Spirit, spirit, which is the immediate context. That's how you determine definitions. The one who exhibits love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. That's the spiritual one. That's the one who should get involved. In other words, if you can't love the man who's caught in sin, then back off. If you can't be patient with the one caught in sin, then let someone else handle it. Don't you mess it up. If you can't be faithful to him, because he's going to need someone who's faithful to him because he's going to go three steps forward and two steps back and four and three and five and six, he needs someone who's faithful to him and is committed to him. If you can't be faithful to him, then give the job away to someone who can. If you can't self-control your attitude, then find someone who can. Immature, condemning, legalistic, performance-oriented, self-righteous Christians should never, ever be permitted or encouraged to do the hard work of the spiritual rehabilitation of a brother or sister in the Lord. Never let them get involved. Never let them do it. Don't encourage them. The one who's spiritual. That's the one. Listen, I've been involved in this where I was so mad and so angry at a brother friend, a couple who helped get me into the ministry and the way he treated his wife and the affairs he had on his wife. And then he got caught. He was detected by the elder board of the church. And I was right in the middle of that in Dallas, Texas. And I was so upset and so frustrated and so angry. I went to the elders and I said, you've got to take me out of this process. You guys have got to do this. I cannot even look at this guy without wanting to kill him. And they said, we appreciate that. We understand it. You need to go pray about that and work on that, but we'll handle it from here. The one who is spiritual, who can walk by the Spirit of God and reveal the fruit of the Spirit, get involved. Otherwise, back off and back away. You'll just make it worse. I would have just made it worse. John R.W. Stott, who is an absolute gift from God to this generation, summarizes. He writes, We have seen that when a Christian brother is overtaken in sin, he is to be restored, and that mature spiritual believers are to exercise this delicate ministry 
gently and humbly. It is sad that in the contemporary church, he's talking about Fellowship Bible Church and every church in this city and every church across this country and the world. He says, it is sad that in the contemporary church, this plain command of restoration is more honored in its violation than in its observance. Yet if we walked by the Spirit, we would love one another more, and if we loved one another more, we would not shrink from seeking to restore a brother who has fallen into sin. Further, if we obeyed this instruction as we should, much unkind gossip would be avoided, more serious backsliding would be prevented, the good of the church would be advanced, and the name of Jesus Christ would be glorified. That is absolutely correct if we would obey this. And yet we do so much damage. And this command is more honored in its violation. It is easier for you to go home and sit and talk with a group of people than it is to put your running shoes on and get with it and help someone. True story. A Christian husband and his wife were in a small group in a large church. And no one knew, really, no one knew just how bad their marriage was. Kind of like some of you in this room. No one really knows. This couple had learned to play the... uh, how could you put it, the looking spiritual game, the mass, on and off. They learned how to play it quite well. And no one knew the truth. No one knew that they couldn't stand each other. No one knew that she was an angry, unforgiving, bitter human being. No one knew that he was abusive to her verbally and emotionally and socially and publicly when they weren't around Christians. No one knew that there was zero intimacy, zero communication. They just passed like two ships in the night. No one knew that he was attracted and flirting with an affair with a female co-worker at the office. And no one knew that she was thinking and planning seriously a divorce. No one knew any of this. No one knew until one night at a group meeting, because they kept hanging on to that group. And you can only hold it in so long. But at the group, it all came spilling out of his wife in a flood of tears. And I knew him. And I'm sitting there talking to the husband years later. And he told me, I just knew that that was the end of us in that group and in that church. I'd been in too many churches and I knew that we'd now be treated like lepers. 
And I was fascinated as he was giving me this history because I knew him to now have a wonderful relationship with his wife and to love her and her to love him. They were like little kids in their relationship, having a ball together. And so I asked how he got to this point, how they got to this point. And he told me, he said, that night was a turning point in our lives. Not only were we never, ever isolated, but we became the very purpose and priority of that group. They were compassionate. They were understanding. And then he paused and he looked at me and he leaned forward and he said, and they were absolutely determined for us. And he dropped his head and he choked up a little bit. And he said, one guy stood up and said, it will please the Lord if we do everything we can to turn this around. And that's what we should do. And the Bible study changed. It became focused on love and forgiveness and communication, and they studied the Song of Solomon and the relationship between Solomon and his maiden and the respect. And the men began to call my friend, and they began to eat meals with him one-on-one. -on -one. Can you believe that? They ate a meal with him. And the women began to reach out to this hurting angry, bitter wife and to help her. And my friend looked at me and he said, our sin was great, but their love was greater. And I'll never forget their commitment to us. I think that works. I think that works really well. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, it is to our shame how we treat in our churches, in our small groups, our friendships, our parachurch organizations, and throughout the kingdom of God, how we treat brothers and sisters around the table who have shaken a can of pot. Lord, it's so easy to talk, gossip, condemn, criticize, slander, revile. It takes absolutely no maturity to do that. None. Four-year-old boys do that. I'd pray, Lord, please help us at Fellowship Bible Church to grow up 
in this and in many areas of our walk with you. Help us to look around, to care enough to look around, and to see how our brothers and sisters are living, but not to condemn or to make ourselves feel bigger or better, but to help, to come alongside, to restore, to reach out, to show the grace of God, to show the love, the compassion, the understanding, the commitment, and the determination that you have shown each of us in this room, sinners all. And I pray this in Jesus' name.